Welcome to the Three Point Threat Podcast. My name is John Kiefer. I'm going to be the host of the podcast today. We'll be joined later by J Notes editor Jared Woodcox. We have a good episode for you today. We're going to talk a lot about some fun things for jazz fans and also just our impressions on where the NBA is right now. For point one, we're going to talk about just the Cavs Warriors and the finals, what our initial impressions have been and where we expect the series to go. Uh, we also touch a bit on what the future of the Cavs and the Warriors might look like. For point two, we're going to talk about shooting guards for the Utah Jazz this last season. We're going to focus on Donovan Mitchell, Royce O'Neal, Alec Burks, and we'll go over just our impressions of them this season. We'll probably do a season in review for each of them, and then we'll talk about what we see the future being for each of these players, what they need to work on, or if they'll even be with the team long term. Point three, we really called upon our listeners to give us some um, ideas of what to talk about. We sent out a tweet the other day asking for questions, and we got a good response, and we picked a few of those questions that we could focus on today. A lot of them are going to be about the draft and free agency. So without further ado, let's get started. Point one. We'd like to welcome Jared Woodcox to the podcast. How are you doing, Jared? Good. How about yourself, John? Doing really good. Staying busy. How about you? Good, you know, same, and I'm excited to be on the other end of the podcast today. It's going to be fun. <laughs> it's it's a definitely a change. I'm still trying to get used to it. There you go. <laughs> All right, well, let's start. We're going to talk about the NBA Finals and just our impressions on the first two games of the series. Uh, I mean, obviously, if you're a Cavs fan, you're kind of disappointed in the way things have played out, especially after game one. Uh, what, what has stood out to you, Jared? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, uh, John. My first impressions of the Cavs, obviously, are in trouble. Um, they blew a huge opportunity in game one. I mean, if this game was still being played in, in the Eastern Conference, uh, being down 2-0, as we saw last round, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Uh, but when you're playing against, you know, arguably the best team the league has ever seen, and you have a chance to win on the road, a very good chance to win on the road, you absolutely have to seize that. Um, I just don't see a way that Cleveland bounces back from this. I mean, I know, like I said, they got down 2-0 to Boston, um, but it was a totally different animal there. Just like I felt like the Cavs had the advantage against Boston in Game 7, um, if, if this game were to go to a Game 7, if the home team were to win each time, I feel like Golden State clearly has that advantage still. So, yeah, I think tables have turned here. It, it's, it's bad news for Cleveland. Yeah, it was definitely a squandered opportunity. And, <laughs> I mean... If it was going to happen to anybody, it just makes sense that it would happen to Jr. I know. And, I mean, it's interesting, too, because if he had gotten that offensive rebound off the, the missed free throw, there's no saying that he would have made the shot if he had gone right back up or dribbled out and pulled up. There's no guarantee he's going to make that shot. And based on how he's been shooting, he probably would have missed. But he has to know the situation, and he has to at least shoot it. And even if he had shot and missed, no one would have been saying a word. Um, but you can't do nothing. I mean, I think best case scenario would have been just call a timeout. Like, no, no, you have a call. No, you have a timeout. And just call a timeout. It, it would allow you to set up a play and get the best shot available. But my big takeaway was from a couple minutes before that happened. I think the the play of the game was the overcalled charge on LeBron James. Definitely. Because at that point, I believe that happened with about I think there was 35 seconds. It was around 30 to 40 seconds left. Yeah, and the, Cav- the Cavs are up by two. If that holds as a charge, then the Cavs can use all 24 seconds of the shot clock. Who knows if they make a shot, but then you go to it, you're up two points, and there's six seconds left for the Warriors to try and win that game. And It's just a shame that that happened. I, I don't know. I find myself cheering for 
LeBron James and the Cavs probably because I, I cannot stand Draymond Green. Yeah. I can't cheer for the Warriors just because of him. If he if he leaves this offseason, I may become a Warriors fan, but I, I can't cheer for him while he's on their team. That's funny. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pulling for the Cavs myself, um, largely because there's a lot of players I like on the Cavs, including some former Jazz men. Um, and, and just all around, I cannot stand the Warriors, what they've become. And obviously adding Kevin Durant up with things rubbed me the wrong way. Um, but putting that to one side, you know, I totally agree that that play totally just, just changed everything. And, you know, I understand the call. And, you know, in reality, maybe it really was a block. That, that could have been the right call. But what really irks me, John, is that they used, you know, that they needed to see if it was in the restricted area or not as their reason for reviewing it. And, I mean, if it would have been, like, his heels were right next to the restricted area, I could see them doing that and then maybe overturning the call. But the fact that he was, you know, a good foot, if not, like, two feet out of the restricted area, I mean, the ref's got to be looking at that restricted area during actual play and see how far he is away from there. There never should have been a review in the first place, if you ask me. The call should have been made. Whether it was wrong or not, it should have been made, and there should not have been a review, and we should have played on. It was just an absolute circus, if you ask me. Yeah, it just was not necessary at all. It was clear to everybody who was watching, except for the referees. But I just at this point in the game, during the NBA Finals, it, nobody ever wants the game decided by a referee, and it feels like this game was decided by a referee. And that's not what you want in the NBA Finals. Yeah, um, that's Yeah, I mean, it's just disappointing. Um, hard if you're a Cavs fan. What, what are your thoughts, just from a Utah Jazz angle, it seems like with the way Jordan Clarkson has been playing and the way J.R. Smith has been playing, they're both, they've been very disappointing. They're not making shots. They're not really benefiting the Cavs by being out there on the court. Do you feel like Rodney Hood should be getting playing time? I do. I actually made a note to talk about that as well. I mean, Hood has struggled, you know, a lot in the playoffs too, you know, for whatever reason. I think it's a combination of things. Um, but at this point, yeah, I think you got to insert him over Jordan Clarkson for sure. I think you still keep J.R. Smith in there as much as he drives me crazy sometimes and as poor of a decision maker as he can be. He's still been in these kind of moments before, so I think it's valuable to have him on the court to some extent. But certainly I would have Hood over Clarkson. I also think that uh, Jetty Osmond deserves some more time too. I mean, he had some nice moments in the regular season as an energy guy, as a spark. And really, that's at this point, the Cavs just got to try to mix things up, get guys out there that are going to have energy, they are going to contribute in some way. Um, you know, even if it's just on one end of the floor, you've got to do something to mix it up because, yeah, Clarkson and, and as you said, JR to some extent are just not cutting it. Yeah, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head with why not? I mean, you've got to mix it up. You're down 2-0. Nothing has been working so far. You might as well try. Give him a chance. See if he can maybe get hot. I mean, we know from Rodney Hood days with the Utah Jazz, he can get hot. He can have games where he goes four out of seven from three and scores 20, 25 points. Um, I, I don't know if he has it in him to do it on the biggest stage like the NBA Finals, but I have to believe that he can give more than what J.R. Smith and Jordan Clarkson are doing. Certainly, certainly, certainly Jordan Clarkson. I just, every time I watch him, I just don't understand why he's on the floor. It just seems like he is only worried about himself and getting his shot, and he doesn't really benefit anybody else on the floor. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, if, know, I, hate, I hate to say it, but I, I think the Cavs are going to get swept if I put my money on it. Maybe LeBron wills them to one victory, but heck, he had 50, what, 51 points in game one, and it still ended up being, did not be, didn't end up being enough. I, I really think they're in danger of getting swept. Yeah, it's hard to think that they can get any more. 
But, I mean, you never know. I think most people when coming into this series, not a lot of people picked it to be a sweep. I think most people thought it was going to be five games, um, maybe six if the Cavs were lucky. But I think game one kind of gave us some fool's gold. It was so close. It was so tight. And we just thought, oh, maybe the Cavs can actually make a series out of this. Um, but, I mean, really, heading into the series, most of us thought it was going to be five games where Golden State won all their home games and Cleveland maybe got one of their home games. So, so far, like it has played out like most people projected it to. Yeah, that's very true. So, any last thoughts on the Cavs Warriors? No, I, I mean, I, I guess, I, real quick, I guess last thing I'll say is just when, when Curry's shooting like he did in Game 2 and when Kevin Durant shows up and, and is focused like he was in Game 2, it's just hard to see that team losing, man. It's crazy. Yeah, I and mean, it's, it's interesting to think like what they're going to do heading into this offseason because it's obvious that they need help on the bench. Because, I mean, Kevin Durant, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, they're all great. But after that, it does become kind of thin. So I'm curious what they're going to do this offseason to strengthen their bench. And I don't know. Like, do you feel like there's any team in the East who could potentially compete against them? Like, if Boston was healthy and had Gordon Hayward and Kyrie Irving, do you feel like that's a good matchup? Um, I think potentially Boston. Um, I think if LeBron goes to Philly, which obviously there's a lot of rumors there, I think there's a chance there that, you know, your, your big three of LeBron and Simmons and Joel Embiid may be able to compete with them. Still a lot of youth there alongside LeBron, but it certainly is intriguing. But I don't know. I still don't know if, if either one of those would be enough. I mean, the Warriors are just so good. And, you know, speaking of the bench, I agree. They do have some support coming from their bench. Um, but, you know, Iguodala has been out two games so far. He's probably coming back for, for game three or game four. Um, Sean Livingston never ceases to amaze me. I swear that guy never misses a mid-range shot. It's <laughs> he's, crazy. He's, he's nine for nine in this series. He hasn't missed. So, <laughs> so there you go. He doesn't miss mid-range shots, though. No. I mean, outside of those two, though, there's not anyone that really, you know, I think it's, it's crazy good. I mean, I, I don't think JaVale McGee is anything that special. Kevon Looney, is, he has, a you know, some potential. Um, you know, Nick Young's not really doing it for me. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, a team maybe like Boston's so deep, and if they get their stars back and can throw 10 guys at them, maybe that's going to be, you know, a scary matchup. But it's just hard to see anybody being this Warriors team as currently constructed. Yeah, and I know we talked about it a week ago, kind of leading into these NBA Finals of, with this being a 4 P, is this just kind of not ruining the NBA, but is it just not as appealing? And... It just seems like the Warriors are set up where they could be doing this for the next five years. So, I don't know. I'm just looking in the East, and I'm trying to see, like, who's up and coming. And it definitely seems like Boston and Philadelphia are the next ones up. I, I really, if Philadelphia, I don't like LeBron James to Philadelphia. I don't think that's a good fit. I think it limits what Ben Simmons can do. And I, I just feel like the chemistry there wouldn't work. But if Philadelphia is able to get paul george or if they can swing a trade for Kawhi leonard that's what i think makes them very very appealing and very interesting next year but yeah, I mean, we'll see yeah i mean i guess i'd say yeah to your point you know having two ball dominant guys like lebron and ben simmons could be a problem for both of them as far as at that point are you really maximizing both their talents if they're not the primary ball handler if one of them's not the primary ball handler so yeah certainly some concerns there Cool. Well, game three is going to be on Wednesday. We'll be sure to watch, and you never know. Maybe something amazing will happen, and the Cavs can pull it off. It'll be 2-1 if they look really good. I don't know. Maybe they can make a series out of this. It's true. that His role players have looked a lot better in their home court, so maybe the supporting cast shows up and they can knock this at 2-2. We'll see. Yep. 
All right, well, let's move on to point two. Point two. For point number two, we're going to talk about some of the current Jazz players. We'll go over shooting guards today. Um, the three that we're going to talk about, Donovan Mitchell, Alec Burks, Royce O'Neal. Uh, let's start with the star. Let's start with Donovan Mitchell, potential rookie of the year. Um, I'll let you start with this one, Jared. What were your thoughts on Donovan Mitchell? I mean, obviously there's so much we could say about him. We could probably you know, dedicate a whole show just to talk about how awesome Donovan Mitchell's rookie season has been. Um, but, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind, John, is – Remember before the season started when we thought that, you know, it would be it was bold for us to say that he'd average 10 points a game, uh, that, you know, he'd be in the starting lineup by the end of the year. We all thought those were kind of bold predictions. And just look at how much he's blown everything that we expected about him out of the water. I mean, going into the year, we were, you know, it was always like, hey, let's pump the brakes. Remember, he's just a rookie. And every time we pumped the brakes, he just continued proving us wrong. You know, all year long, he never really hit much of a rookie wall, if at all. Um, even in the playoffs, he looked like a seasoned vet. Just everything about this year, I can't say enough about how spectacular he's been and how fortunate the Jazz are to have landed him. Um, he's going to be great for years to come. Yeah, it's really, really exciting if you're the Jazz, especially that you got him with, I mean, they traded, what, the number 21 pick and Trey Lyles to move up and get him at 13. Really exciting. I mean, I think the biggest thing that you said was just he overcame every possible expectation that anyone could have had about him. I think we all saw the talent. We looked at him in summer league. We looked at him in preseason. We said, oh, man, this kid could be good. But no one expected him to do it this year and this fast. Exactly. I mean, he, he carried this team through stretches of the season. And when Don, not Donovan Mitchell. <laughs> when Rudy Gobert went out with injury, Mitchell kept us somewhat afloat so that when he came back, we could go on this run and get back into the playoffs. And in the playoffs, I mean, who would have thought that a rookie could go toe-to-toe with Russell Westbrook, who was the MVP last season. And that's just incredible. Yeah. It's going to be fun. It's, it's, it was, I think the most complimentary thing you could say about him is more often than not, I forgot he was a rookie. Yeah. And, you know, not only did he go toe-to-toe with, with you know, a guy like Russell Westbrook, I think you could make a very strong argument that he even outplayed uh, reigning MVP Russell Westbrook, which is just amazing in and of itself. Um, one thing I want to comment on too, John, is, I mean, I have a hunch, and I think that most Jazz fans realize this or, or believe the same thing as well. I have a hunch that Ben Simmons is going to end up winning Rookie of the Year award as much as that irks us. Um, but one thing in that debate that I feel like isn't being talked about enough um, is the usage rating between those two players. Um, you know, I was looking it up, and Donovan Mitchell's usage rating for the regular season was 28.8. That went up to 31.8 in the playoffs, so even more. Simmons stayed right around 22.2, 22.1 during both the regular season and playoffs. I mean, both those numbers are, are huge for a rookie season, you know, regardless. Um, but just the fact that Donovan Mitchell was relied on so much by this Jazz team to keep them afloat and keep them successful. I mean, yes, I know he had Rudy Gobert, just like I know Simmons had Joel Embiid. But the fact that Donovan Mitchell was just asked to do, you know, more than any other rookie in the league by a long shot, and that he still came through with the level he did. He never let the pressure get to him. You know, he never, um, you know, had really even consecutive bad games. He always would bounce back and just play so well. I think that speaks volumes to how special it was that what he did this past year. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was looking at those usage ratings too. And 29% during the regular season, that's highest among all rookies this last year. Highest among all first and second year players. Um, in the playoffs, 32%. That was the fifth highest among any player. 
I mean, he was up there with LeBron James, Russell Westbrook, James Harden for usage rating. So, I mean, to ask a rookie to take on that load and actually see him succeed with that level of workload, that's amazing. Um, I mean, we all know the numbers, 46 games over 20 points. He had multiple games where he scored more than 30. Um, what do you have? He had two games where he scored over 40. And just incredible, incredible numbers. And I think the biggest argument I kept hearing throughout the season when people talked about the Ben Simmons, Donovan Mitchell debate was we just kept hearing, oh, he's a chucker. He's a chucker. He's a chucker. He's inefficient. But that's just not true when you actually dig in and look at the advanced numbers. Um, from zero to 10 feet, he took 40% of his shots. And from three-pointer, he took 40% of his shots. So 80% of his shots came from efficient areas on the court. So the, the narrative that other people were throwing at him just weren't true. He had a true shooting percentage of 54%, which was actually right in par with Ben Simmons. So I don't know. I just think he's, he's going to continue to get better, and that's what's the most exciting is he was 21, he was a rookie, and to look at what he did this year and to look ahead and just think he's just going to get even better. I don't, I don't know how high he's going to go. Yeah, it's exciting. And, you know, to your point, I do hope one thing that he adds to his game is just, you know, keeps improving. It is his uh, three-point shooting. Um, but definitely the narrative that he's inefficient was certainly overblown and in many ways inaccurate, especially for a first-year player. Yeah, and he's it's going to be fun. He, he seems like the type of person, too, who over the offseason, he's just not going to get complacent. He's going to keep working. He's going to find ways to get better. I think that's one of the reasons the Jazz drafted him is it seemed like he had a really, really high work ethic, and everything we've seen throughout the season um, is a testament to that. I do know, I don't know if you saw this, it sounds like he's still in his walking boot from his toe injury. Yeah, everyone keeps saying it's precautionary, but I think I saw on either Twitter or Instagram, he said something along the lines of, you know, can't hoot because I'm, I haven't been cleared yet. So it's it's a little worrisome that if it's just precautionary that it's been on this long, but hopefully it's nothing too crazy to worry about. Yeah, and it, it was kind of funny. He he posted that tweet about how he just wanted to hoop, and I think Joe Ingles, like, came back at him, like, then play. And he's like, he's, I think he called him soft. It's just funny to see the back and forth that they have. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, let's move on to um, Royce O'Neal. I'm really happy about Royce O'Neal. I think he's one of the better stories across the entire NBA. A guy who, at the start of his career, didn't get drafted out of Baylor and had to go overseas and play a few seasons. And then he had to fight just to get on this Jazz roster. He made depression in summer league, and then the preseason, it was down to him and Joe Ballenboy. And I'll throw myself under the bus. Before the start of the season, I wrote an article for the J-Notes about who should be the final cut. Should it be Joel Ballenboy or Royce O'Neal? And I was pro-Joel Ballenboy. I, I, I really like Ballenboy. Maybe it's because I, I, I went to Weber State, so I maybe was a little biased. But if you just go back and look at the preseason and the numbers, Ballenboy earned that spot based on the numbers alone. Yeah, He did play better. He shot the ball really well. He rebounded at a high rate. He had some really impressive like in-traffic rebounds and put-back dunks. Um, but the Jazz went with their gut. They went with Royce O'Neal, and a big part of that was Dante Exum going down with his shoulder injury. I mean, that might be the only reason Royce O'Neal is on our roster, is Dante Exum went down with a shoulder injury, and we needed another wing. But that's, that's the luck you need, and he certainly made an impression on me, and it seems like he's earned himself a roster spot for years to come. Yeah, 
I'm with you 100%. If I recall correctly, John, I believe you and I were actually doing a show where we talked about Royce and Ball and Boy, and we both kind of shared that sentiment that, you know, I like Royce. I like, I like what he's bringing. I like how he looks. But Ball and Boy was kind of the guy we hoped to see make it. And in hindsight, I, I think it's pretty clear that Ball and Boy could not have done what Royce did. I mean, I still hope that Ball and Boy can spot in this league and, and you know, find his footing there. But O'Neal was just impressive. I mean, the fact that he was starting in the second round of the playoffs, obviously, you know, that was due to injury. But, I mean, that just so shows that he's a bona fide rotation player in the NBA. And, you know, the best thing about it is we have – his contract is like pennies. It's, it's, I mean, well, an NBA standard anyway, it's pennies. It would be a lot for you and me. But, <laughs> but, you know, his contract is just so affordable. We have him for two more years, and he's just going to be so important to this Jazz team as a 3 and D player. Um, you know, he did shoot only about 35% from three, both in the regular season and the playoffs. So I'd love to see that go up a little more. But, I mean, heck, if he gets it up to about 38% even – that's going to be awesome. He already has the defense alone to be on the floor. If he has just a few more things offensively, what an impact player he's going to be at such a bargain. Yeah, I think that's the key for him in the offseason is how can he improve, and it's going to be the three-point shot. Um, defensively, we know what he, do, what he does. We know what he brings. He's great on the perimeter. We were able to throw him at some of the best offensive threats in the league. Um, I looked it up of, of all players who played a minimum of 50 games and at least 15 minutes per game. He had the second-best defensive rating in the entire league, better than Rudy Gobert, and among wings, he was number one in the NBA. So defensively, he's a terror. He's just absolutely terrific, and he's a shutdown, lockdown defender. Um, but we need him to be able to play on the offensive side. I think the thing that I like to see is, even though he's not a great offensive player, he does play within himself. We don't see him try and force things. Like you see a lot of fringe rotation players when they come to the game. They play like they have something to prove, and they break away from the offense a little bit. He never did that. He was very good at picking his spots, playing within the offense, I mean, really just primarily shooting shots that were either at the rim or from the corner three. And I think that's great. He played within his role, and he didn't disrupt the offense, and he was a huge plus on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think it just speaks volumes to his, you know, basketball IQ, his understanding, you know, it's been hard for him to earn a spot in this league, and he's done it by staying true to himself, not by trying to be something that he's not. And as he continues to do that and expand on his strengths, I think he's only become more important to the Jazz. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to the final player. We'll talk about Alec Burks. Um I'll let you talk mainly about Alec Burks. I know you really like him. The one thing I'll just say real quick is I'm really happy that Burks was healthy and that we got to see him play for a whole year. And it impressed me that at the end of the year, one of the things he mentioned was he'll never take health for granted again. I just thought that was great. Um, and a lot of NBA players probably don't think about that. And he had to go through this experience so he could learn the value of just being on the court. Yeah. You know, I was just so happy to see Burks have such a good finish to the year. Obviously, he, I don't think it's a stretch to say, John, that he was one of our best players in that series against Houston. I thought he really stepped up and we needed him on a lot of different occasions. And that was awesome to see. You know, you really got to respect a player who I'm sure that Burks realizes, you know, kind of the, the chatter that goes on behind the scenes about how his contract is kind of a burden for the Jazz because they're paying him more than he's been able to produce, you know, largely due to injuries and other factors. Um, but, you know, the thing I like about Burks is that through the adversity he's faced, through all that, you've really never questioned his hustle or his effort. You know, at times his decision-making or his shot selection or, um, you know, they can be questionable. 
Um, sometimes his focus on defense is a little off. I think those are some reasons why he's fallen out of the rotation before is because he's kind of lost the coach's trust. But, I mean, if he can play more in control and kind of correct those, you know, mental lapses in that shot selection, I really think he could be a nice piece, whether, you know, he's with the Jazz beyond this year or not. I think there's a lot to like about how Burks ended the year. Um, You know, I think there is a chance that he could be traded this year. Obviously, that contract is one that Jazz may want to move, even though, you know, it is expiring, uh, which could potentially make it more valuable. But we'll see. I mean, I really like Burks. I'm glad he ended the year well, showed some really good things. Um, at the end of the year, at the end of the day, though, I'm not sure he really fits into the Jazz's long-term plans. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it was good to see him play, and I think he showed his value in that Houston Rockets series. And we forget that. I mean, against OKC, he barely played. Against the Thunder, he really only played in a couple of the blowout games. Um, but when he got his chance, he definitely took advantage of it, which is admirable. I think the biggest thing that I noticed with him is he kind of got back to the point where he was finishing around the rim again. Um, with injuries, he's really struggled with that. He, Over the last three years, he dipped down to where he was only shooting around 50% at the rim. And last year, he only shot 33% at the rim. So you could tell he wasn't fully healthy. He was really struggling. Um, but this last year, 25% of his shots came between zero and three feet of the basket. And he made about 63.5% of those, which for reference, Donovan Mitchell took 26% of his shots at the rim and made 64%. So he and Donovan Mitchell shot about the same at the rim, which, I mean, we've seen how good Donovan Mitchell is at the rim. So that's something that the Jazz may need. Against the Rockets, we needed somebody who could go isolation, go one-on-one and get his buckets. And he did that for us and proved his value. I really like Alec Burks, but I do think his contract is going to be something that we look to move so that we can bring in maybe someone who... I don't know if if they'll be more valuable, but maybe they fit more what we need right now. Um, I've been all over this. I really feel like we need a shooter, someone who can shoot the three. And I imagine we're going to look to move Alec Burke so that we can bring some more shooting in. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And it's it's a valuable contract. He he doesn't make a ton of money. I mean, with the new, like, cap that got raised, he'll make $11.5 million um, for a... I don't know, seventh man, that's not terrible, but it's an expiring contract. So someone could take that on knowing, like, we'll only have it for a year, and then he'll be off the books. So he is a valuable trade piece, and I think the Jazz are going to take advantage of that. Yeah, I'd agree. All right, do you have any final thoughts on those three players that you want to add? No, I think we covered it really well. I just It's going to be interesting to see, like you said, what happens with Burks, whether he's a trade piece or whether you know he does serve as some extra depth for us. I'll be excited to see how that turns out. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's move on to point number three. Point three. Finally, we're going to move on to point number three, and we'd like to thank all our listeners out there. We sent out a tweet asking for questions, and uh, we picked some of our favorite ones that we're going to go over for you today. Um, A lot of them revolved around what's upcoming for the Jazz and the draft and free agency and and what we expect them to do. Uh, We'll start with question number one. This one is from... Um, Austin Leonard at Austin Leonard 98. He said, if the Jazz miraculously had the number three pick and Aiton and Donkic were both off the board, who would we take? That would be miraculous. I would love if something like that ended up happening. <laughs> um, uh, what do you think? Who, who in your mind would be the best fit for the Utah Jazz? So, you know, I was kind of, you know, had my own opinion and I was kind of looking at some different mock drafts, John, and 
I feel like pretty consistently, um, three through seven, a lot of mock drafts they have, you know, Muhammad Bob from Texas, Jaron Jackson from Michigan State, uh, Marvin Bagley from Duke, uh, Trey Young from Oklahoma, and Michael Porter Jr. from Missouri, you know, in varying orders. Those, that's usually three through seven. Uh, four out of those five guys are big men, uh, with a lot of them listed at center. Obviously, center's not, you know, a huge position of emphasis for the Jazz with Rudy Gobert on the roster. Um, but I feel like some of those guys obviously could be stretch fours as well. You know, there's guys like uh, like Bagley and there's guys like Jackson and Bamba that can stretch the floor. Um, of those ones I've mentioned, I really feel like for me, you know, if you if you think that Bamba is too much of a center and he can't coexist with Rudy Gobert, obviously he has a way to go to prove that he can be an effective three-point shooter. I think it comes down to either Bagley or Jackson. And then for me, between those two, Bagley's a more proven scorer. Obviously, I think he averaged like 21 points a game at, at Duke this past year, where Jackson was, you know, just over 10. Um, but the thing I like about Jackson is I feel like he has a little bit more versatility to play the four and be a more of a stretch four. So I think I would go with Jaron Jackson if we're talking fit for the Jazz. If we're talking just best player available and higher ceiling, I do like Bamba. I do think Bamba has the potential to be just an absolutely absurd player. Um, kind of like a Rudy Gobert that shoots threes, but he has a long way to go, and I don't know if him and Gobert could coexist that well. So that's the long answer. Short answer is I think I'd go with Jaron Jackson. Yeah, um, he was my favorite. He would be my pick as well. I, I do really like Bamba, but it seems like he's destined to be a center, and I don't know. I mean, can you imagine him and Rudy Gobert in the paint, though, with both of their wingspans? I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure if you lined them up side by side, they could go from like one side to the other of the court. Um, I mean, they're just so long. Um, for the first time, actually, I looked up and did more of a deep dive on Bamba yesterday, mm-hmm. and man, I he is going to be good. I mean, if everything pans out right for him and he goes to the right situation, I like the idea of him going to Dallas, where I've seen a lot of people kind of project him to go, just because they have good coaching, good organization. Um, that just I, I like when people who have a lot of talent go to organizations who can use it. Um, though I had no idea he could shoot threes and look comfortable doing it too. I mean, it was impressive. And then he had a few dunks that just show that he's very, very athletic. Um, he would be very good, but I just I can't imagine he would coexist with Gobert. Um, Jaron Jackson actually is my favorite. I think he is going to be the best out of these prospects. Uh, if you're just talking about upside, I think Marvin Bagley probably has the highest upside. But if you're looking for fit for the Jazz, I think Jackson is the best. He, I mean, he still rebounds the ball well. He is good on the perimeter with defense. Um, he can shoot the three pretty well and pretty consistently, which is something we need. Um, I just think if you're talking about someone's floor and you have that high of a pick and you just want to ensure that the player you're getting has no potential of busting, I think he has some of the least potential to bust out of anyone in this top 10. Um, if I want to differ from you, just so we don't have the same pick, I really like uh, Michael Bridges out of Villanova, the small forward. Um, just classic 3 and D player, but he also showed some explosion, athleticism that would be valuable. He's another one of those guys who I just feel like he's going to step into a team and immediately have a positive impact. There's just things that he can do that will benefit a team right now. But then he also has areas that he can improve as far as his scoring versatility that could lead him into being potentially an all-star down the road. But if you drafted him today, he could probably start on the Jazz tomorrow. Um, and like he's kind of good insurance for Joe Ingles. I love Joe Ingles. 
Um, Joe Ingles is 30, though. I mean, who knows like, kind of how long he's going to be able to keep up playing 30 minutes a night like he did this last year. I think his future with the Jazz might be transitioning to a six-man role where he plays 24 minutes. So there is some potential there of let's draft a three who can kind of take over that role. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And i got to be honest, John, I'm a little surprised that we both had Jaron Jackson. I thought I was going to differ with you, but now I feel like, you know, same wavelength and great minds think alike. So exactly. That's, there you go. That, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I think Michael Porter is, is he's pretty intriguing to me, but obviously there's a lot of injury question there. Um, I'm going to be real interested to see how he turns out. I, I know some people are, you talk about how Jackson has kind of the least potential to be a bust. I wonder about how Porter's going to translate into the NBA and how, how in that regards. Yeah, I do think he's going to be good if he's healthy. I think obviously that's the scare, right? I mean, he came in and heading into last college season, a lot of people projected him to be one of the top three picks. And now he's kind of fallen to the five to 10 range. And it's just about his back. Is he going to be healthy? It's, it's hard to judge a player who only played uh, – I think he played three games for Missouri, two in the tournament and one before. So it's hard to judge a player on that, but offensively I can see him stepping in and having immediate impact. The reason I worry about him is I I worry he's going to be Carmelo Anthony, where you know what you're getting offensively and it's it's definitely a plus, but I don't think he's going to be able to hang out there defensively unless he gets to a team and a coach that pushes him to do those things. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Personally, like, there's a lot of players that I've seen that are closer to where we are at 21 that I'm really high on that, I don't know, I don't see a huge need to move up in this draft. I know you wrote a piece on potentially moving up to number 14 where Denver has been floating that pick around. Yeah, I mean, I agree, though. It's, you even look at, like, the, the draft workout that was just today, and, um, you know, there's a lot of promising guys that Jazz are looking at. There's some that have already worked out, and regardless there's going to be good players left at 21 the only way i see us move up is if there's like a donovan mitchell 2.0 situation where we're just so wowed by someone that we say we got to get this guy no matter what and we're worried he'll go in that 14 to 20 spot if we're pretty content with hey you know we love all three or all four of these guys and we're certain we can get one of them at 21 i agree i don't see why we'd make a move we probably just let it play out and get the guy that is best that's left yeah exactly um, question number two. This one came from Clayson underscore Surlay. I hope I said your name right, Clay. I'm not positive. Um, he gave us a scenario, um, a test question. He said, what should the Jazz use their potential cap space for this summer? A, use it to take on bad salary and acquire an asset. B, sign a free agent this summer. C, save it for 2019 or other. Um, I'll start with this one. I just wrote a big piece on Derek Favors, and if not Derek Favors, who? Because I think that's a big, big question that not enough people ask themselves around free agency. Um, if you're looking at a player that you currently have, whether you're tired of him or not, who is going to replace him? If you say, like, you know, we don't want him anymore, well, who are you bringing in, and is that really a better option? Um, there are some intriguing names out there. There's a few that are restricted free agents and younger who I think any one of them would fit this Jazz team and be able to give us um, a really good like talent boost in our youth. Um, but they might be unrealistic because they're restricted free agents. It's going to take a little bit more to uh, discourage their current teams from just matching those contracts. But 
Jabari Parker, Aaron Gordon, Julius Randle are the three that I've looked at. Um, any one of them I think would be a good player to target, but I think each of them are probably going to take around $20 million per year to get, if not more. And it would take some finagling for the Jazz to make that available. So if they don't go after those three, the next tier down are players like Mario Hazonia, who a lot of people view as a three, but he actually played a lot of four for Orlando and played really well at the four. Thaddeus Young, who I know you're intrigued by. Um, You might be biased, though. I know you're a Pacers fan. And then... Um, oh, there was one more. Do you remember who I wrote about? Who was the third? Luke and Mute. Thank you. Um, I, obviously, we know Luke and Mute from Houston, and last year we played him against the Clippers, but he has shown the potential to be a consistent three-point shooter. Not an not a amazing knockdown three-point shooter, but over the last two years, he shot about 37 38%, and we know what he can do defensively. So I think the Jazz have to ask themselves the question, are those young restrictor free agents worth $20 million a year? And if not, are any of those other names I mentioned really better than Derek Favors? I don't think so. I think if you could get Aaron Gordon or Jabari Parker, I might do it. But if not them, I really feel like the Jazz should just stick with Derek Favors, give him a three-year contract with like an opt-out after two, and just keep writing this out and see how far he can go with it. Yeah, I like a lot of your thoughts there. You know, I think my biggest thing, John, as far as this free agency is, unless some crazy opportunity prevents it, presents itself, you know, like getting a Paul George or a LeBron, which obviously we know there's almost no shot of that happening, or, you know, maybe you could even throw, as you said, an Aaron Gordon or a Jerry Parker in that mix of, hey, this is an opportunity we just can't pass up. Although with them being restricted, I think even those are kind of hard to, to see happening. Um, but, but I guess what I'm saying is if there's not an opportunity like that that presents itself, and I really just want to see the Jazz be conservative this offseason. And with that potential cap space, I mean, you know, if they keep favors and if they keep Exum, um, a lot of that cap space goes away right then and there. Um, regardless of, of whether they keep those guys or not, you and I have talked about this a ton, but the Jazz need to add shooters. I'd love to see them make some kind of low-key free agency moves, whether it's for uh, Joe Harris or um, Nemanja Bielitsa. Um, where, you know, we've talked about like a Glenn Robinson third. I'd like to see him, you know, make a play to add, you know, some three-point shooting uh, with their cap space this summer. Um, and then there is the question, you know, if they do lose favors or if they do lose Exum, they are going to have, they're going to need to be more aggressive in free agency. They're going to have more cap, you know, obviously just by losing Derek's contract. And they're going to have to go find someone, whether it's those guys you mentioned or someone else that maybe not be on, that's maybe not on our radar. Um, but long story short here, the biggest thing I want the Jazz to do this offseason regardless is to keep their flexibility for 2019. I mean, we have so much flexibility coming up for the offseason of 2019. You know, that's when Rubio's contract is off the books. That's when Alec Burks' contract is off the books. That's when our guys that have team options, you know, if we keep them for this year, they'll be off the books in 2019. So really there's a ton we can do in that offseason of 2019. So anything we do this summer, I just want us to be careful and bear that in mind. You know, you mentioned Derek Favors to a three-year. I would absolutely love if we could sign Derek Favors to one of those one-plus-one contracts where we have him for one year and then a team option for the next year so that we can kind of evaluate, okay, do we want to keep all this money on the books or do we need to shed it so we can have a big-time free agent? So in a nutshell, that's my that's my biggest focus is unless there's a crazy opportunity, 
Let's keep looking to 2019 because that's when the money really opens up and we have a ton of cap space that we can make a big splash in 2019. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I of the options that he put forth, I think the, the one I would definitely want to avoid is just taking on a bad salary. Um, I think the Jazz would keep their flexibility and make sure that they aren't hindering themselves for the future and what options might be available. Um, and with Derek Favors, I think a big thing that I hadn't really taken into account, but we definitely should take into account, is does he want to be here? Uh, I know David Locke did a podcast today, and that was one of the things he talked about was Derek Favors has voiced his opinion about how he likes Utah and he wants he wants to be with the Jazz, but he also mentioned that there are sacrifices that are going to come along with that. Yeah. And what are those sacrifices going to be? I think he knows that he might not get to close games, that he might not be the main featured guy like he was three years ago. I mean, Gobert kind of swooped in and took that from him when he was hurt. Um but is he willing to sign? Like you mentioned, a one plus one. Does Derek Favors like that idea? I don't know if he does because if he's doing a one plus one with a team option and he doesn't play very well next year, well, now he's probably getting worse or less money than he could get this year if he just went to another team. So I think that's a big thing. Like if he's going to do a one plus one, like why not go to Dallas, Atlanta, New Jersey, not New Jersey, Brooklyn, um, one of those teams where – they may not be very good, but he signs a one-year deal and gets a lot more playing time so that he can increase his value and show, like, hey, like I'm still capable of putting up big numbers. Now sign me for $15 million a year. So I think that's the one thing with Favors that I've been keeping in mind is I think if you're going to keep him, he's going to want at least a few years of guaranteed money. Yeah. So, but Sorry, go on. I was just say real fast, you know, the other thing along those lines, too, that I, I wrote a lot about Derek Favors for the J-Notes, and one point I brought up in one of them, to kind of, you know, back up what you're saying, John, is that Favors has had some spotty injury history the past few years, and in his mind, he may say, you know, hey, I don't want to risk having an injury and losing out on money. I do want to sign a long-term deal now so that I have an insurance policy in case I do face more injury setbacks. So I think that's another valid point that... You know, my thinking was maybe he'd agree to the one plus one so that he could have more uh, more flexibility and maybe hit free agency in 2019 when there's going to be a lot more suitors. But to your point, if he's worried about injury or if he's worried about having you know a down year this next year with you know the sacrifices he'd have to make, maybe he is going to just say, "Hey, long long term contract or bust." I don't know. It'd be interesting to know what his thoughts are there. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's go to the last question. This is from Mike Orton. Um, you can follow him at, at Mike B Orton. He asked a pretty simple question, just straightforward about the draft. Jacob Evans or Dante Exum, or both? Yeah, I mean, I, I, hypothetically, you know, we could take Jacob Evans with our pick and have both of them, like you said. If we're just coming down to, you know, which one I'd rather have on my team. Um, there's a lot to like about Evans. You know, it's kind of funny. I feel like there's a lot of players you could say this about, um, but a lot of mock drafts have him going some as, like, mid to late first rounder, others in the second round. Like, he's kind of all over the place, like a lot of guys are. You know, I think he's a good shooter, good athlete, good defender. Um, but at this point, you just, you have to stick with Dante Exum. I know, you know, recently on Twitter, there's been a lot swirling about Jazz fans kind of giving up on Exum and not having a lot of a lot of faith or hope in him. And I'll be the first to admit, John. I mean, there's times when I look at Exum and I'm really worried that man, he's just not going to pan out. I don't I don't know what to expect from him. But at the same time, you know, the Jazz have been nothing but optimistic about him and nothing but high on him. And I think that they realize that, hey, a lot of his setbacks have not come because of lack of effort or lack of talent. It has been these unfortunate injuries. 
And kind of the example I'll allude to is, you know, us fans, it's easy for us to say, oh, we're done with Exum. Um, but then again, us fans, you know, when we saw Ricky Rubio the first half of the year, a lot of us wanted to trade him. I'll, like you did earlier, I'll throw myself under the bus that I was so fed up with Rubio early in the year. I thought that we should move on from him. And what do you know? He turned it around. The Jazz knew what they saw in him, and it panned out. I trust the Jazz believing in Exum a lot more than I do myself or other fans doubting Exum. So I think at this point, you know, with all we've invested in him and all the Jazz seeing him still, got to stick with Exum. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree. I, I do like Jacob Evans. I've seen him. Um, and a few mock drafts, and I've watched some highlights of him, and I think he's going to be a good NBA player. He's built like a tank, and he's kind of like, whenever I saw him, I just instantly I thought about Jay Crowder, but just two inches shorter. I mean, he's 6'6", but he's tough, and he can play defense. He's a decent spot-up shooter. I think he would fit the culture of the Utah Jazz really well in what we're trying to go for. However, you can't just throw away the upside of a fifth pick in the draft and I think that upside is still there for Dante Exum I think he's shown flashes of what made him that number five pick and we have to remember that he's dealt with so many fluke injuries and you hear a lot of people throw out like oh he's injury prone I don't think he's injury prone I think he's just been unlucky and we don't know maybe the next three years he never gets hurt and he really blossoms because he finally has off seasons where he's not recovering, but he's actually working on his game and improving. Um, the other thing with Evans is Evans was a junior at Cincinnati, so he's coming into the NBA at 21, 22 years old. Dante Exum is only 22, and he has four years of NBA experience now. So the upside is there for Dante Exum. I do think he's going to develop his game and become better and better. I agree he's become very frustrating at times, and it's disappointing that he hasn't already kind of gotten to the point where we wanted him to be. However, I still see the potential there, and I want to give Dante Exum at least another couple years before we just officially write him off. Now, I guess the the tangent to this or the added qualifier to this is he did mention, or both, I, I don't mind Jacob Evans, and Jacob Evans is... A two-guard, he's 6'6", six, 6'9", six, six, wingspan. There's no real reason why you couldn't draft Jacob Evans and have them coexist together. It would be great for our bench to have another player who can just play lockdown defense, but I think then you're also getting into the role of Jacob Evans is kind of repetitive of Royce O'Neal, and who would you choose in that point? And I usually lean towards taking the player who is cheaper and has already proven himself in the NBA. Yeah, it's, it's hard to go against a sure thing. That's, that's definitely true. But I think everything else you touched on is spot on. All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap it up for us today. Um, I'd like to thank everyone who tunes in, who listens. Uh, give us a like on Twitter and follow us at The Three Point Threat. Also, make sure you're following the J Notes and reading the great content coming out. Um, you can follow me at, at John underscore Kiefer. And I believe you're just at Jared Woodcox, right? Cool. Make sure you give us a follow and we'll talk to you all next week.